This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 16. Episode 31. This is Writing Excuses. First page fundamentals, Moby Dick by Herman Melville. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Don Juan. I'm Mary Robinette. I'm Dan. And I'm Howard. So we're going to do... said, you can call me and then our name. I think that I admire... Impressive restraint. (laughs) Uh, So we're going to do another deep dive into an opening page. And in in this case, we're going to do Moby Dick. Uh, It probably has one of the most famous uh, first lines that Dan just referenced right there. Um, So I'm going to hand it off to Mary Robinette again to introduce us to this... uh, this little sample here. And just a brief content warning, much like uh, when you make promises to a reader uh, at the beginning of the book, we want to make sure that you have the opportunity to nope out of things that you don't want to read or listen to. Uh, Moby Dick deals with a couple of things. Uh, It deals with uh, mental illness and suicidal ideation. Um, And those are both present in the, the paragraph that you're about to hear. Moby Dick. Loomings. Call me Ishmael. Some years ago, never mind how long precisely, having little or no money in my purse and nothing particular to interest me on shore, I thought I would sail about a little and see the watery part of the world. It is a way I have of driving off the spleen and regulating the circulation. Whenever I find myself growing grim about the mouth, whenever it is a damp, drizzly November in my soul, whenever I find myself involuntarily pausing before coffin warehouses and bringing up the rear of every funeral I meet, and especially whenever my hypos get such an upper hand of me that it requires a strong moral principle to prevent me from deliberately stepping into the street and methodically knocking people's hats off, then... I account it high time to get to sea as soon as I can. This is my substitute for pistol and ball. With a philosophical flourish, Cato throws himself upon his sword. I quietly take to the ship. There is nothing surprising in this. If they but knew it, almost all men in their degree, some time or other, cherish very nearly the same feelings towards the ocean with me. This is another example of an opening that I absolutely adore. Um, I think it captures so much of the spirit of this book in in just a tiny little microcosm. Um, it's darkly humorous, and not to make light of, of the very serious issues on display here, but the tone of it, I think, really establishes so much of the book. And given the grimness of a lot of things that lie, lay before us, he's approaching it in such a specific lens that I think sets us up to meet Ishmael, sets us up to meet Queequeg, sets us up to spend time on this ship with all these people who all have their own reasons to be at sea, but fundamentally are all because they are escaping something. Um, and they're, they're escaping the, the burdens of everyday life. Um, and, you know, you have that last note that ends on all men in their degree cherish very dearly the same feelings toward the ocean with me. Um, and, and that choice to go to sea rather than submit to 
the other things that are plaguing Ishmael in this scene, I think, is is really the core spirit of this whole book. Yeah, we tend to think of Moby Dick as, you know, the the pursuit of the great white whale. Um, and and while that is happening, it it really is about escaping. It is about, you know, the uh, the the internal conflict and the the great white whale. What that represents is, you know, that that's the avatar of of the escape. It's it is the it is the not self. Um, but it, this book. Uh, and it's been, you know, I will grant a very, very long time since I've read it. But um, uh, for those of you who uh, cannot see the uh, the, the uh, video feed, uh, Elsie has just joined us by jumping up the back of my chair uh, and across my face. Um, okay. <laughs> so, hello. Elsie, uh, would you like to purr for these nice people? No. Okay. Good job. Um, <laughs> so. Uh, what were we talking about? Uh, use of flashbacks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think the thing, you know, even putting aside, because we are focused on how first pages work. So we can put aside sort of the, the bulk of Moby Dick, you know, right. um, and really focus on what draws people in, in this case, you know, again, I like it because it is that microcosm, but in terms of the mechanics, what pulls people in, you know, you have a few things. Going back again to the idea of authority, it literally starts with an authoritative statement, which is call me Ishmael, right? It's it's a command to the audience. But also there's so much character built into that, in that that sense of unreliability. You get the sense immediately, Ishmael's not this guy's name. He's asking you to call him that for some reason. And the slipperiness that's injected into it immediately sets so much of the tone for what's pulling us into this paragraph, what's pulling in, you know, in terms of that breadcrumb, breadcrumb one, the authority of the command and the doubt about who this person is. And then we're sliding immediately into this portrayal of someone who is suffering some kind of mental illness, some kind of condition here, uh, whether that's depression, whether that's suicidality, all these things are really coming to play in this scene. And that is driving him in a very real way to make this choice, which is to go to sea. Yeah. The other thing that he does uh, again in that uh, things things are going to be somewhat squishy is uh, some years ago. Never mind how long precisely. Again, it's it's that command to the reader. But then he gets he he gets very specific about all of the different um, kind of symptoms that he spots in himself. And so I think one of the things for me again, you know, in terms of the 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 ways that this pulls me in is it's like, look, don't worry about this thing. Don't worry about that thing. Here are the things I want you to think about. It's like this, this examination of self, um, the, the bringing up the end of a funeral p- procession, uh, the, the moment when you, you think, maybe I should just step into the street. Those, those things are specific. They're visceral. They are um, inherently things that uh, of listener or a reader can relate to in some ways and and disturbingly so yeah, but my, also funny my favorite bit of this is you know the methodically knocking people's hats off right it's yeah. such this very specific image of this guy just losing it and the way he's going to lose it is walking the street and knocking everyone's hats off because he's so frustrated with something right um and you know Voice is a huge component of what makes this paragraph work. But the other aspect is character, 
you know, all these things about Ishmael that raises all these questions and all these story promises of finding out what's going on with this guy. Why is he like this? How is he going to address the stuff that he's struggling with in this paragraph? And just the, the specificity of the image, the specificity of the way in which his frustration is manifesting itself and knocking people's hats off. I think opens huge doors into into the story, into the character, and and is that just absolute trail of breadcrumbs that pulls me into the book to find out what's happening next. Yeah, well, and that word methodically changes everything about the sentence. This is not him losing control. This is not him becoming so frustrated that he has to go out and knock a hat off. That's not what's going on. He's trying to pick a fight. Mm-hmm. He's trying to get himself in a fist fight so that he can feel something, so that maybe someone will beat him up or kill him, uh, just in order to uh, start something. And I love that line. That was absolutely the part that stood out the most to me. And then it's paired with this, with a philosophical flourish, Cato throws himself upon his sword, I quietly take to the ship. Right. There's this high minded intellectualism that Sonny slips in here. And here's this guy. We know he's broke. We know he's sort of at the ends of his rope, but he's still going to talk about Cato. He's still going to talk about philosophy and history. But then contrasting that with him quietly heading to his de- his destiny here is is, again, this disjunction, this pairing of contradictions in this character that raises all these questions about who he is. Yeah. Now I have to admit they're going to take my English degree away for this, but I've never actually read Moby Dick. And so coming to this completely cold, what stands out to me more than anything is what you've already talked about, that this is entirely character focused. Moby Dick has such a reputation as being this very uh, plot heavy and or metaphor heavy uh, kind of slog of a book that is, you know, incredibly detailed about the process of whaling and about all of these other things. Nothing that I have heard about the book prepares me for this paragraph being so intimately based on one person's mind and mindset. Um, it, it This suggests to me that it's much more character driven than I think the cliches about the book have led me to believe. Yeah. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Um, why don't we take a moment to pause for the for the book of the week, actually, which is uh, a preparation for for next week's uh, next week's episode. Yeah, so next week we're going to do our third and final deep dive, uh, and we're going to be reading uh, Lee Child's The Killing Floor. Uh, These are the Jack Reacher series of books, uh, which are very well-known, very successful series. Uh, Killing Floor is the first Reacher book. It's Lee Child's first novel. Uh, I think it's an absolute masterclass in how to write a thriller. Um, These are some of my favorite thrillers ever, and I think it will be an incredibly instructive example. It's also a fun read that'll take you about 30 seconds from start to finish, um, and you won't want to put it down. Um, So, uh, yeah, our book of the week is The Killing Floor by Lee Child. Um, A couple of fun uh, trivia bits about Moby Dick. 
Herman Melville wrote this across a span of about 18 months, which is a year longer than he planned to spend. Um, about halfway through the writing of it, he met Nathaniel Hawthorne, and it's, uh, it is supposed by many that this meeting inspired Melville to go back and revise and expand and make the project a bit bigger because Moby Dick is actually dedicated to Herman Melville um, or dedicated to Nathaniel Hawthorne um, in token of my admiration for his genius. Um, uh, I think that, I, I, I don't know what his writing process was like. I doubt that the first line came first for him. And I suspect that part of that expanding and revising was the recognition that Ishmael's voice was a, a poem, if you will, that was going to get stretched through the book in ways that perhaps it hadn't. You know, in fiction, sometimes we talk about audience surrogates, right? So this is Kitty Pride and the X-Men, that, that character that the audience can relate to, to get them into the story. And I think Ishmael's operating for us in some of the, those ways, right? He's, he's going to be our lens into understanding Ahab as we understand what's going on with Ishmael, like Ishmael being the sort of larval stage of Ahab as he descends into his obsession, into his madness and all of that. So, you know, I think, again, this is the author telling us from the very first line what we're in for, what kind of story this is. This is going to be a story about men struggling with their internal selves, and Dan's right, it, so much of the way we talk about this book is this metaphorical, like, man against nature and all these things. But really, at the end of the day, this is a group of people who are characters divided against, minds divided against themselves, trying to overcome their own limitations, their own obsessions, to literally survive the experience. And all those stakes are there. Survival is on the page. Dealing with mental illness is on the page you know, figuring out a solution to what kind of life do I want to lead? All those things are immediately in this first paragraph. And I think the echoes from that will ripple throughout the book, right? This is the first stones thrown into the pond. And then that's going to shape everything that comes after it. You know, one of the, uh, the, the book, there's sort of a parenthetical aspect between the beginning and the end of the book in the editions that we have today, uh, there's an epilogue, um, and in which we we learn that Ishmael survives, you know, the the final events of the book. The first UK edition in 1851 didn't have the epilogue, and uh, and that forces me to imagine the experience of the British readers of 1851, who are who you know, first line, call me Ishmael some years ago, never mind how long and then get to the end of the book and it doesn't look like he lives. How does that even, how, how does that even work? Um, yeah. So I, I want to, just because we're talking about um, opening lines and, and the importance of, of setting things, um, there's, a, there's another book that is related to Moby Dick that, uh, that is called Two Years Before the Mass. And we were talking about what inspired Herman Melville to write it. And, and, he, in multiple places, cites this book, uh, Two Years Before the Mast, which is a, a memoir. It's a, a real book about 
a, a British fellow who who went to see. Um, and this is the opening of that. And I want you to notice the difference of it and the difference of the promises it makes. Even though the subject matter of the book, which is being at sea, is, ex- you know, on the surface, exactly the same. Uh, or I should say being at sea and a lot of details about being at sea. The 14th of August was the day fixed upon for the sailing of the brig Pilgrim on her voyage from Boston round Cape Horn to the western coast of North America. As she was to get underway early in the afternoon, I made my appearance on board at 12 o'clock in full sea rig and with my chest, containing an outfit or two or three uh, for a two or three year voyage, which I had undertaken from a determination to cure, if possible, by an entire change of life and by a long absence from books and study a weakness of the eyes which had obliged me to give up my pursuits and which no medical aid seemed likely to cure. So both of these are men that are going to see to to fix something, right? But the promise that is made in in that opening paragraph about the ride you're going to be on is entirely different. They're both told authoritatively. They're both uh, internal and about the character's sense, but one of them is much more focused on the surroundings and we're going to get on the ship and this is going to come to an end when I get off of this ship. And the other is, uh, my mind is a mess (laughs) and I'm going to see because my mind is a mess. I went sailing because I need glasses. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And the other genre thing I want to, you know, flag here is this opening firmly places this book in a tradition of oral history, of oral storytelling and folklore, mm-hmm. um, which is a totally different vibe from, you know, what Mary Robinette was just talking about in, in Before the Mask. And I, I think framing it that way gives it this mythic tone immediately. It calls to mind Percy Bysshe Shelley's Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. It calls like the Odyssey. He's referencing this grand history of oral epics. And, you know, I think framing it that way, again, gives us such a sense of where the story is going. And so when he spends the next three chapters talking about cuddling in bed with another man while they smoke pipes because it's cold, and then goes into four chapters describing the biology of whales, we have in our head still that this is going to be this epic storyline. This is going to be this long framework of an adventure, even though we're taking all these digressions. And I think that tone carries us through those digressions and lets us, you know, gather the joy of those moments, which are very funny, very strange, very weird moments. And then, you know, loop that into this bigger narrative, this bigger understanding of we're going on the odyssey here, right? We're going on this grand journey and people will contend with the elemental forces by the end of this. I want to point out just really quick, uh, a word choice trick that he's doing here to grant it some more of that epic oral history vibe, which is alliteration. Uh, In a lot of Western, especially Nordic languages, Beowulf, for example, uh, has front rhyme rather than end rhyme. Uh, That the letters all, the words all start with the same sounds. And that was a form of rhyme in this really strong epic oral tradition. So when you get down here and he says, whenever I find myself growing grim about the mouth, whenever it is a damp, drizzly November in my soul, he is echoing that type of oral epic storytelling very deliberately. And there's there's two sets of rhymes in that one line, growing grim about the mouth. That is a mm-hmm. beautiful phrase. Yeah. 
Well, we are going to leave you uh, with a slightly longer episode, which is appropriate for Moby Dick. Um, and we're going to give you a little bit of homework. Uh, and that is to write an introduction that is purely internal to the character's mental state. So much like this begins with him ruminating on where he is internally, uh, that's what we want you to, to do with, with this homework episode, uh, this homework. Now, if you're in a mood to, to try something really fun, take the one that you wrote last week and rewrite it so that it is focused on the character rather than the the description of the outside that you were doing last week. This week, focus on the character's interiority, that question of who am I at the beginning of this book? This has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. This episode of Writing Excuses was engineered by Marshall Carr Jr. and mastered by Alex Jackson. Your hosts were Dong Wan Song, Mary Robinette Kowal, Dan Wells, and Howard Taylor. The episode was brought to you by our patrons at patreon.com slash writing excuses. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storytellers' stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one -on -one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.